so this word that I've had is not uh, something that's been stirring in my heart. This is very much a heart message, but how many of you um, have heard the word revival? Yeah, a little laugh there, revival. Um, so over these last couple of weeks, I've really been feeling a stirring towards this word revival. Now, I've grown up charismatic. I mean, straight charismatic. I mean, I'm talking about falling in the spirit, going crazy um, in whatever happens. And that was my, very much my birthing place. But revival for me has a very um, distinct baggage for me. How many of you have had bad experiences or bad experiences of the word revival? Yeah, a couple of hands here as well. Yeah, we, we get a bit ugly. And, and so, but I believe with all my heart that God is stirring something in this area and has stirred once before. I'm sure of people who have lived in this area of experience. There is a, a heritage of uh, revival, which we're going to be getting into today. But really, God is wanting to show us a new way. And at the beginning of the year, I had this phrase, um, to see a new way, to see in a new way. And we had to, I believe, define our DNA. So we went through and defined what we are as a church to help us to see clearly in where God is really wanting us to go. But revival, the word is to make an improvement in the condition or strengthening of something, is the restoration of the church and a passion for God. There's been many great awakenings. We've had four great awakenings from the 1730s, 1740, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, um, 1790 to about 1840 was a second. Um, and that really reformed and helped see slavery start to come to an end, which is amazing. Each revival having this massive impact. The third great awakening um, within the 1850, 900s. And that actually propelled into England. So the great awakening happened over here, propelled into England. England, and that's where we saw the YMCA, great, uh, the, the Salvation Army come to life. And so the fourth one that we, some scholars kind of believe about, the fourth awakening, the Jesus movement. And so revivals have had massive, massive impacts in transforming not only people, the church, but also the world. But I found that we have more tainted the word of what revival is and made it just a good feeling experience where people just kind of get together and have a high together and don't do anything with it. I've experienced a lot of that in my life and I've never seen the true fruits of what I believe, but God is wanting to do something. We are primed for a revival. We are primed for what the true definition of what revival is. Is. And so I really felt my heart to share today. I don't know why, but actually, the more this week, I had a meeting um, with some people. We've got the Whiskey Rebellion that happens. Now, whatever your feelings are towards that, um, I believe that we need to engage culture. It might not necessarily be a good thing in itself, but we need to engage culture and be the light. And actually, churches meet on a Sunday and do a reenactment of the revivals that actually occurred in this area. And so Sunday, um, uh, I'm going to be involved in the worship there in the Sunday afternoon. So I'd love for you guys to come out. But I believe that God is wanting to stir again. He's stirring again in England, stirring across Europe, a revival that needs to come. Because we need a revival, amen. We need a move of God. There is nothing else that will transform this nation, this area, without another move of God. And so I want to look today at what it is for a revival. I want to look at some three points uh, here today. And so before we get into it, I just want to pray. So Father, I just thank you for this word that you've put upon my heart. 
But Lord, I humbly come before you, knowing that you, Spirit of God, I need you. Help me to communicate this message to your people. Would you open our hearts this morning, God? Open our ears and eyes to what you have to say this morning, Lord God. Because, Lord, I believe that this is a heart message that you have for your people, for this church and the surrounding area, Lord, that you are preparing us for a shift that is about to come. You are preparing us for a move of God. But, Lord, that you care about us. You care about us so, so deeply. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this time together. Would you bless it in Jesus' name? Amen. And so, um, in the passage of Acts, we see kind of the formula of what Act, of the uh, revival really looks like. We have Pentecost, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, but in Acts 3.19, it says this. This is what Peter is saying to the crowd. This is the same Peter that denied Jesus three times. This is the same Peter which ran from God, but came back to him. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And with boldness, he proclaimed the good news. And 3,000 people were saved in that moment. And this scripture, this verse is very telling to what I believe a revival is. It is repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I love that, that imagery of sins may be wiped out because when, when they would write on paper, their, their ink didn't have the acid so it wouldn't sink into the paper. It would literally lie on top of the paper. And so you could actually wipe out the writings and it would be clean again. And so I love that imagery that Peter is using. But a lot of times when we hear this message, repent, we think of all the fire, brimstone kind of preachers. We think of the condemnation that comes and we fill ourselves with guilt and with shame. But that is not the heart message behind this. Repent and turn to God that your sins may be wiped away. The stuff that is on your life that is not meant to be there, the burdens that you carry, the DNA of who you are is being infiltrated by things that are not how God designed you to be. He designed you in a different way. And sin detaches, separates us from this. But this passage is so interesting because it says, Repent and turn to God so that times of refreshing may come from who? God. A lot of times in revivals, we've found that we have thought that if I drum up and do a good things, God will see that I'm doing good things and he'll bless it. That's not how it works. Our role, and this is the essence of my message this morning, our, our stewarding is to repent. Our re response is to always turn to God, to turn back to God, to turn back to God so that he can pour out refreshings in his time and in his season. There is no good works that you can do to draw God, but other than just living with that constant repentance, that heart of repentance. We all need repentance, amen. We all need forgiven. Every single day, the Lord's Prayer, we come, Lord, forgive me, forgive me, that I may forgive others. Let me forgive others so that I can receive your forgiveness because I am broken. And so we look, I want to look at revival through the lens of the people of Israel. See, Israel is a perfect representation of our lives. Israel would get blessed and become super comfortable. 
they would just kind of go along in their lives and they would start worshipping other gods. Other things would come in their lives. And so they would turn away from God. They would rebel against God. And God would take his hand off of them. And then there would be a destruction in their world. They would cry out to God and come back to him. And God, every single time, would come back. They reckon in the Old Testament there are 17 times where this pattern kept happening over and over again. If my kid kept doing the same thing over and over again, I get short with them within two or three times. 17 times over and over again. And Nehemiah in chapter 9, 28 really encompasses this, this whole thing that happens. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they ruled over them. And they cried out to you again. You heard from heaven, and your compassion, you delivered them time after time after time. And so I'm going to be looking at the three returns that is really the pattern of what revival is all about. Revival turns us, revival transforms us, and revival transcends. Revival turns, transforms, transcends. You say with me, it turns, transforms, and transcends. And we're going to be looking at those three points today. In Jeremiah 29, 10 and 13, it says this. This is what the Lord says when 70 years are completed. For, remember, God's timing right there. When 70 years are up for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promises to bring you back to the place. Again, that wonderful grace that is there. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me and when you seek me with all of your heart. And that's our responsibility. Not to work out the times of when God is going to come or try and drum up the time of when God's going to come. But to have a heart that says, God, I am in a state of knowing that I need you. I'm in a state that I need to repent, that I need to turn my heart back to you. So number one, revival turns us. Revival turns us. And so in the passages that we've been reading through the Old Testament, um, we've been working through um, some of these books, um, the uh, prophets, the old prophets of old. And um, in Ezra, we see uh, the, the coming back of the children of Israel. Coming back to the children of Israel. And in Ezra, there was um, a person called Zerubbabel. Say that word with me, Zerubbabel. I think that name's really funny, Zerubbabel. It's that Zerubbabel. Um, but his, his heart when he came, so they'd been in exile for 70 years. Uh, Daniel had interceded, the nation had turned and prayed, and they had favor to be released um, back out of Babylon and to come into all the things that God had had. And so the first wave of the people of God um, came and Zerubbabel headed that up and he actually came with the intent to return the people to the heart of worship. So revival turns us and it returns us to worshipping in the house of God. It returns us to the worship of the house of God. And so I feel like many revivals have that kind of turn. 
right? They bring people together, revivals do. They bring a whole collection of people together in the intent to worship and glorify God. I have been part of so many times of that kind of movement. How many people have experienced that within their lives? Um, anyone familiar with the Toronto Blessing? There was the Brownsville Revival. And these elements really came together where a, a large number of people gathered together with the intent to worship and glorify God. That is the sign that we will see. And this is, and to be honest, I don't think we're anywhere close as a nation to any of these yet. I think we're at the very beginning part. There is an inkling of worship that's being reformed, but for a nation to turn their hearts and affection back to God is where we need to start. We need to start with that very intention of our heart condition. And so I just want to read to you from the actual uh, documentation of the revivals that happened in Washington here. Um, Washington formed um, in 1768, but in 1781 was the very first revival in this area. And just to read from this, the first revival of the region ever witnessed west of Allegheny Mountains took place in the full year of 1781. Simultaneously with the organization of this county, what is remarkable about this is that the interest manifested commenced almost exactly at the same time in four different congregations, somewhat remote from each other and without any precedent effort. The Cross Creek, Upper Buffalo, uh, Upper Buffalo under the care of Joseph Smith, Chartiers and Pigeon Creek, under the care of Reverend John McMillan. This work seemed to have proceeded and ushered in on one hand by deep groanings. So on the one part was the deep groanings on the part of God's people over the very low state of religious feeling among themselves and the conditioning of the unthinking crowds who were without any apparent concern for themselves. What a wonderful illustration. Their lack of concern for their own well-being and, the, and just this kind of lawlessness that was occurring in that land, pressing onto the final judgment. And so on the other hand, there was these people that were meeting, praying um, for God to come and move with uh, services and a heart to pray. And so this is before the actual revival kind of kicks off. There was nothing remarkable about the work itself except the deep and genuine concern which seemed to take possession alike of all old and young, friends and foes of the gospel. The most marked feature of those who were brought under concern was the deep and overwhelming sense of the absolute contrite of their hearts and the lives to the law, the awful wages of sin and the interposition of their part by reason of hardness of their hearts. And so I believe, as just as we turn about the revival that turns us, the heart condition is everything to how we seek revival. Everything is to do with the heart. Within the biblical times, Old Testament, the heart was not just, they didn't understand that we had a brain that thought, right? So when it talked about your heart, it wasn't only your emotions, but it was also your thoughts. What comes from your heart was the words of good and evil. Everything poured out of this heart. And it's super easy for us to have a hard heart. It's so easy when you think about not only are your feelings and emotions there, but your thoughts and also your reasoning right there. And so grief, desires, joy, understanding, thoughts of reasoning and products of all our hearts. 
Jesus tells us that our storage of our hearts where our good and evil comes from. And so even Jesus speaks to this when he's speaking to the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 8 and verse 17 and 18. Aware of their discussions as Jesus heading back um, over across the water, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand or are your hearts hardened? Do you, uh, you have eyes, but you fail to see. You have ears, but you fail to hear, and you don't remember. A hardened heart causes us to not be able to see or hear or even remember the things of God. And so it's the condition of our heart that we must always have the repentance. Because repentance enables us to turn, but it realizes that we have not got it together. That we are not God. That maybe we've got something else on the throne. Something else that we are transfixed on. But God is saying, I want my people to turn back to me. To turn back to me. And that's why I believe as a nation that we are at. I don't believe we've got desperate enough for this yet. And God might continue to let his hand off this country. We might continue to see, but I believe and I pray that we can have the mercy, if people can get hold of this, that we are not the answer. And it's really hard in the Western world if you think about it. What do you need to actually rely God for? What do you actually need him for? We need everything, but I don't think, I don't think we really need him after time. We have enough money. We have our own homes. I have a supermarket that I can just go. I don't need to rely on anybody. I don't. If I have enough money, I am self-sufficient. And this community, it's really hard for us. And we can lose sight really easy of the need that we have for God, that he gives us all of these blessings. But I know that when I've got something always around me, I take it for granted. And that's why I love my prayer times with my children, because I purposely say every single prayer time, what are you thankful for? And I always say, I'm thankful for our roof over our head and running water. Basic, basic stuff. I want to keep my heart there. Every single morning that I have the shower, the shower I don't drink coffee, but showers are my coffee. If I don't have a coffee, do, if I don't have a shower, don't talk to me yet. Because I need to wake up. That is my coffee right there. And if I didn't have a shower, if I had to, when we were in Africa, walk a mile just to get water, to come back and boil the water, and then pour it over myself every single morning... I'd be more and more thankful. But my heart can become so easily twisted and by the things of this world wanting to pull in and shift my one thing. And as I shared before, because I believe that the cure to this is to have the one thing. In Psalms 27.4 it says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. If you remember nothing else about this talk, please remember this. The one thing. What is your one thing right here, right now? What is it? Is it the finances that you need for what you want to purchase? Is it a relational breakup? Is it work? Is it children? What is it right now? Is it God? Now, the one thing that we've, we've done wrong with this kind of idea is that we've made everything about maybe like the Christian church, the physicality of actually following Jesus, as opposed to letting the one thing flow in and out of everything you do. See, a lot of people will say, well, if, if I've got the one thing, I'm just praying all the time, and I'm, I've, I've decided to leave my job and go to seminary. 
right? That was kind of the talk. If God was really your one thing, you should become a missionary. That was always the kind of talk that I always heard ushered, but that is not what God is saying. God is saying, have the one thing and let the one thing flow through everything that you do, whether it be your work, whether it be in your home life, everything flow through. Let the one thing flow out into every part of who you are. And so the challenge really is, is the one thing I ask from the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. And so I just want you to close your eyes just right here and right now. Just to take a pause for a moment. Is the one thing mattering to you right now? Is it your phone? Is it your work? What is the one thing that you have on your mind right now? Just to bring it to mind, to slow us down in this moment, because we are so fast-paced that we don't even get to work on what our one thing is. Okay. So our second point is revival transforms us. Revival transforms us. I think about how powerful transformation is. And a lot of times when I've experienced revivals, I've had glimmers of transformation. I've had glimmers of what God is wanting to do uh, in and through churches. A lot of times, though, we kind of want to still live on the, the good times and the good feelings. But God is not only wanting to leave us in that part of the good feelings, right? He's not wanting just to experience love within our lives, but he's actually wanting to transform and do something within your life. And so in the book of... Uh, in the book of Ezra, in chapter 7, we see, so we've seen the return of the, the altar. We've seen the building of the foundations of God, the temple starting to be rebuilt. But it's not going so well. It's been many years. And so the next wave comes uh, through the person of Ezra. And so as we jump in at uh, Ezra chapter, chapter 7, verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his status and the rules in Israel. I find that really, really interesting. That not, not So these people had established all the sacrifices. They had got the practices back in, the, the act of worship coming through, but they weren't being transformed. They weren't being transformed. And that that kind of blew my mind that that was happening. Actually, in uh, Ezra chapter 10, we see this as well, the condition of the people. And this is in, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping. So he had come and seen the state of what Israel had. Uh, there was still an upbuilding that was happening. But while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him at his uh, out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of all of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these things according to the counsel of my Lord and of the tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. 
See, revival has to shape us into the conditions that God is calling us to. It's not enough for us just to feel good, for us to feel the love, but God wants to deeply transform us into what he's called. And so again with this revival. So we had the beginning of 1781 revival, and that kind of like petered out, but then God came and moved again in 1801. And there's a wonderful phrase. It was called the moral earthquake. The moral earthquake came rushing through. And it was during the latter part of 1801, there seems to be of a widespread feeling of distress at the low, again, the low state of religion amongst God's people. And the alarming increase in the boldness and outspoken opposition of the enemy. Does that sound like right now? The boldness of the enemy shouting. There has never been um, the, the persecution of Christianity. The media aren't showing it, but there is deaths right across this world where Christians are being killed on a daily basis, but no one is talking about it. There is mass, mass killings across this world, more than any other religion in the world at the moment. There's articles all about it at the moment. We are being persecuted. And maybe we don't feel like we are right now, but our heart needs to be aware that there is a persecution that is happening. There is an enemy that is rising up. And so gradually the interest deepened. Some special services, especially in connection with communion. Notice this. There's a problem. We don't fall asleep, church. There's an issue that's happening. There's a voice that's rising up in 1801. And what do they do? They get together and pray to God. They get to God and say, we know that the one thing is God and he is the answer. And so they start to draw together, having special services. um, And many were awakened in this. Again, the awakening started to happen. And some brought to Christ in their deep earnest and more wrestling spirit did the people of God get down before, beseeching him to come to their help. So intense was their feeling that besides the general quarterly prayer meeting, which was reserved on first third day of each quarter by nearly all the churches for the last five or six years before this time actually come, before 1801, five or six years, people were crying out for the condition of this area. Do you have that heart? Do you have that heart? Let's just be honest and real right now. Is the one thing God and to see God and transform, or have we become so passive? And I remember we had uh, some prophetic words given. What will it take? And I, I don't want to get to that stage of what will it take for you to spur into seeing people transformed? Now, this heart and message is not for us to come and start having revival services at this church. I don't want to do that. I want to speak to the condition of your heart this morning. I've spoken with some people this morning. I've spoken with people in weeks before. And there is a condition that God is drawing within your heart that you are desperate for the one thing. I've had conversations with people that have said, you know what, I just want to get back to simple things. I just want to get back to the heart of God. And this is what these people were doing. They were seeing a condition. They realized that the one thing was God and he was the answer. And so they would have prayer services. And then the time came. The windows heaven opened. The Sabbath preceding the communion was a season of great interest and no small evidence of the presence and the power of God. Not a few tarried and spent most of the night in prayer. Thursday being observed as the day of fasting and prayer gave increased evidence of the Spirit's presence. Before the sermon had commenced, two young persons who had retired to the woods to pray fell prostrate on the ground, completely overcome. It was the commencement, I love this expression, the falling exercise. 
Anyone in the charismatic will notice that people fall in the spirit. When these two young persons were met by others, they were crying. They inquired as to what the cause of distress was, and their answer was, we said, we have so long rejected the offer of mercy and hearts that have become so hard. Again, that phrase, our hearts become so hard that we fear God will have no mercy upon us. Now, we know in this room that God has mercy, ridiculous mercy. They were carried to the house. For five hours, the service continued. The place, I love this word, was literally botchum. It got crazy. The cries of distress were heard in every part of the congregation. They were setting following the Monday when the congregation was dismissed, but, a move, but no one made a movement, and everyone stayed. Hundreds remained day and night on the grounds. It was by far the most impressive scene ever witnessed west of the mountains. Great numbers were prostrate on the ground, utterly helpless, and the next day began to dawn, light began to break into souls, which were up to this time had been left in total darkness. Can you imagine the scene outside in the fields, crying out to God? Night has come. You're sweaty. You're hungry. Kids are probably crying. You're tired. And yet these people continue to delve into the presence of God. And so at the Upper Buffalo, which is really not far away from here, two weeks later, the interest was still greater. People came from great distances on foot and the horseback and in the wagons bringing their provisions with them. No less than 15 ministers were present. 950 people, I think, were saved that day. And not less than 10,000 persons were on that ground. All deeply interested from the scores and hundreds crying this cry, what must I do to be saved? I have no time to dwell on the particulars or to speak similar displays of divine power at other places, but will ask you for a moment to call upon the facts noted and try to measure, if you can, their significance. For example, how extensive the interest must have been to gather together with such immense crowds, especially those who witnessed at Crossroads and the Upper Buffalo. Just to think, 10,000 persons being gathered from separately settled counties to be great extent without roads or public convenience of any kind so that it manifests that many of them must have walked even scores of miles and at the lowest calculation there are five times as many people within the same territory limit that now so what would you think of religions religious interests would bring together 50,000 people to spend not days and nights but weeks together without shelter or any accommodation of any kind except that they could bring with them wow this is in this heritage this is in this land this happened the very ground that we stand on is bathed in revival of people. But again, the heart check was just to turn back to God. To turn back to God. And so revival started to transform. There's these amazing stories that are in here um, of these people that were so angry about the revival. They were set out to destroy it. And so you can imagine, you know, God's rising up. The enemy is coming as well. And there's story after story of these people that would come with intent to break the revival, to come and cause destruction. They got to the ground and they fell to their feet prostrate, asking for Jesus to come meet them to save them. There was other stories of a man who was so angry that his children had gone to this revival. 
And he was determined to go back and rip them out of that revival. And as soon as he set his eyes upon his children, he broke down before God and prayed, God save me. There was transformation that was occurring throughout this entire season. So, transfer, so revival, it turns our hearts to God. It causes us to cause us to long for the one thing. It causes us to rise and dwell together. That There is no separation. There is no denomination. There is no this church and this church. It brings churches together. It turns us for the one thing. And then it transforms us. It causes us not to long for the things of the world, but it causes us to long for a deep hunger for Jesus within our walks. And thirdly and finally, revival transcends. It returns to the witness of the land. So we've had Zerubbabel, we've had Ezra, and then finally Nehemiah comes on the scene. Again, the state and condition of Israel is not going great again. And so Nehemiah in verse 217 says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble you're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer. This is what revival does. It turns our hearts. It causes us to be transformed, but it must transcend into culture. It must cause us to build the very fabrics of this world. And this revival did exactly that. It sent missionaries out to New Mexico, South Africa, Egypt, China, and India. Washingtonians, people of Washington actually got a passport, not a passport, but they actually got travel documents to travel out of the country. That's unheard of for you guys. The amount of times I go up to people and say, so do you have a passport? I'm like, no, why'd I do that? Maybe to go to Canada, that's the kind of extent of what people travel. These people actually wanted to get travel documentation to travel to the world because their heart burnt for this world to know this Jesus. And not only that, but it caused reformations, as I've already shared, to help the lost, to help the broken, to help the poor. The YMCA's, the Salvation Army, there is countless things of even the slavery movement. It caused transformation. I have yet to live and see a revival do that. I've seen small revivals cause uh, thousands of people to come together, tens of thousands of people come together to worship. Uh, I've seen that, and I've seen some formation change. I've seen people draw close to Jesus, but it peters out. But I've yet to see a revival in my lifetime that causes culture to be changed. And that is a mark of a true revival. The Christian faith is not central to society anymore. It's a thing off to the side, and they're trying to push it more and more out. And so I just want to invite the worship team up. Um, we're just going to spend just a moment, just in worship, uh, with this song that's called The Heart of Worship. The song that's called The Heart of Worship. And I love the chorus. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it. Because it's all about you. It's all about you. And so this morning, my, my heart's cried for my own heart. Because I need this word as much as anyone else. Because if I'm honest, God is not the one thing in my life. There are lots of other things that are taking priority of the one thing. He is not in all of the things that I do. And so I want us just to spend some time together checking our heart as we just sing these words. And I don't look for you to stand. I don't look for you to cause anything within you. But I want you just to take a moment 
as we sing this song for Holy Spirit to say, God, do I need to say sorry? Do I need to come and repent to you this morning? Because this is the attitude that I want for our church. Because God is going to come and move. Mark my words, God is going to come and move again in this nation. He is going to come and move in this land again. But will you be ready for it? Will you have a heart that is already willing, repentant, turning back to Him on a consistent basis? Will you be the people that draw in the next revival? Will you be the people that cause a turning of this nation? Do you long for people? Or are we so consumed with our own worlds that we don't see the brother and sister suffering in this land? My heart crying. And it's not a condemnation, but I want us to get serious, church. I want us to get serious. We've had words. Ed Trout on Saturday night gave a kind of convicting word. He said the freedom that we have, but also come on church, get moving. We've had those words over and over again. And I think we kind of slip in back and forth. We had Andre Venzel say, awaken. But if we don't instill, if we just have the coming together of worship, if we just come with the heart just to worship God, and it's not to see transformation in our lives and not to have our brother and sister transformed. It will always peter out. It will always fall apart because something else will take your one thing. Something else will always take your one thing if you're not doing something with that one thing. If you're not letting it change you from the inside out. If you're not letting it love other people well. So we're just going to sing this song together. But with this attitude, we just want to check our heart this morning and say, God, are you the one thing? Lord, I'm sorry for the times I've made it because it's all about you. It is all about you, Jesus. We long for you to come and move. And so, Father, I thank you for this word. Lord, I thank you that your mercies are new every single day, that your heart is for us to be the best versions of what you see us to be. But so often we settle for second best. We settle for second best. So Lord, we just want to turn back to you this morning. We want to come and turn back to you. And say, God, would you be our one thing this morning? Would you be our one thing? We just want to start there, God. We just want to come there, Lord. We just want to say one thing. You are wonderful. You are lovely. You are worthy of our praise. Lord, we're sorry for the times that we have made it. Holy Spirit, come.